0: I had a roommate, two roommates, towards the end of my drinking, and one of them was really brutally honest with me. He would tell me, you smell terrible, you know, you smell like the homeless guy on the train that everyone moves away from and it's like 10 in the morning. He would say, you don't look so good today. He would say, you know, these things that are kind of difficult to say to a friend. He wasn't telling me because he was annoyed. He wasn't telling me because he wanted something out of me. He was really telling me to be a good friend.
1: So that is the voice of Stephen Y, age 34. My name is Mike S, and this is the first episode of 2020 of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. So I wanted to start off and talk a little bit about this op-ed that was in the New York Times this past Sunday entitled, The Patriarchy of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was authored by a woman named Holly Whitaker. And the crux of the op-ed focused really around the idea, well, a few ideas, one of which is that AA is not the only way to get sober, which I would wholeheartedly agree with, and two, that because AA was created by white males in the 30s, that many of the fundamental, she calls them rules, of AA are detrimental to women such as herself because, quote, Today's women don't need to be broken down or told to be quiet. We need the opposite. I worry that any program that tells us to renounce power that we have never had had poses the threat of making us sicker end quote. So you know, I don't want to make this some point by point rebuttal of what she's saying because a lot of things that she's saying are correct. AA was founded in the 30s by a group of white males. In fact, the original title of the big book was called Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. And without a doubt, the text at times can seem comically misogynistic in its tone. For example, in chapter nine, which is called The Family Afterwards, there's a line that says, our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a woman may take with the husband who is recovering. Just those sorts of lines that seem comically old-fashioned and ancient. Um... But you know as someone who's attended a lot of meetings, you know, thousands of meetings at this point since I first walked in the door, you know, at least in my opinion, I feel like the text gets universally treated by men and women or other exactly as it, how it should be, which is words that were written nearly 100 years ago and in a climate much much different than the one we have now. You know, the verses that are on the borderline or cross that border, I've seen sort of laughed at or smirked at because they're so old-fashioned. And everyone's well aware of it. And because, you know, at the heart of AA, the purpose of AA is not to push anyone down or to take anyone's power away, um, but instead to help, you know, anyone with a desire to stop drinking. Um, There was one thing in the article she did say, though, you know, she said, uh quote participants are expected to accept the tenets of aa without question and there is a common refrain that the program works if you work it in other words don't ask questions and any failure is your own fault you know you know i i never felt that way um first of all the idea that like you're supposed to never ask questions i you know i think i've i've i feel like aa encourages you to question things with your sponsor with with other people in the program and i and i and through your shares i I've shared many times about you know especially in the beginning about things that I didn't understand or didn't necessarily agree with um, and was never it was just sheer curiosity and it was never met in any sort of combative way I think the 12 steps have always been regarded as suggestions not instructions which sort of is one of the things that she was implying um, she said that today's women don't need to be broken down and told to be quiet which I of course agree with and Women I've spoken to on this podcast have told me that A.A. taught them rather to, you know, to disgorge themselves and speak their mind, not not to, not to be quiet. Um, you know, to be anonymous in A.A.'s case doesn't mean to be secretive, as we've discussed. It's, in the case of A.A., it means to be equal. And, you know, the idea that people from all walks of life, the phrase Park Avenue to a parched bench, Yale to jail, man or woman, they can get together in a room and no one person is more important than the other. And that there's no rules for membership. Just, again, the desire to stay sober. There's no dues or fees. There's no requirement to suddenly find religion. And I know formerly drunk atheists who are just today sober atheists. And they continue to attend meetings. Again, I agree that there's many ways to get sober. But what I needed, at least, was community. You know, every day I get to walk into a meeting and identify with a group of people who think like me, act like me, who have survived alcoholism, emerged from the other side. And, you know, perhaps there was an acid trip or an ayahuasca journey or a magic pill or a a yoga class that I missed that could have cured my alcoholism, but it would have deprived me, I think, of the opportunity that I have every day, which is to feel useful, you know, to be of service, to help out another alcoholic with one day sober. Um, Maybe I'll be able to get Holly on the podcast and we can discuss what she's doing and have a different take on recovery. But for now, I'm going to get on to my interview with Stephen Y. How is addiction different maybe in an Asian culture versus how I would know it? So I think
0: traditionally there's not a lot of discussion about emotions and Um, shortcomings and that kind of stuff. Uh, Asian culture is a little bit more closeted in that way or something. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not a lot about open discussion. Alcoholism, I think, is not really talked about as much, at least in, like, mainland China and, like, in the more traditional um, sense. But I did have the advantage of my parents being... So since they were the kind of first American generation in my family, they had a very Asian upbringing. So they made a very big point to raise me in a way that they were not raised, meaning they were really open and very like you know accessible and trying to not put too many expectations on me or say you, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. It's right. kind of like traditional Asian values. And also it, it helped that my – so my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was an alcoholic and he, he died from, from drinking. I, he was fairly old. I think he was in his 80s. Was it something that the family recognized as he's an alcoholic? It wasn't like we said, oh, yeah, grand, grandpa's an alcoholic, you know, but there were signs, you know, he always had a lot of booze around and um, he was a very quiet drunk, off in his own world, very solitary. I do remember actually as a kid, you know, like he was always like staring out the window with a drink in his hand, like in, in his house. He would, he would stand by this window and just stare out the window drinking. And and then every now and then he'd get like really friendly, like almost like rough friendly with me, you know, where he yeah. would like grab me and start like hugging me and like kissing me, and like he had the stubble, and I just remember being like assaulted by the stubble <laughs> and being like ah, you know, like and uh, my mom will will say like you know remind me and be like yeah he used to do that and it was like really scary and you know because he was like so reserved and then all of a sudden he would get like this like wave of emotion or when whatever he had it was. a few drinks. Yeah. And, um, so because they, they, uh, my parents saw that process and what happened, I think when I explained to them that I had a drinking problem, like they kind of understood that, you know, like what alcoholism was and how it can manifest in different ways. And they're both like very, I'd say like enlightened people. So I think even if they hadn't dealt with it directly, they would have a lot of cultural knowledge, um, of like in
1: compassion towards addiction and whatnot. And, Asian culture is underrepresented in most of the AA meetings that I go to. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is?
0: I think there's a lot of stigma in Asian culture about drinking. And I think there should distinguish, you know, like traditional Asian cultures, like Asians from Asia and then Asians living in America, like Asian American, because I think in Asian countries, there's like almost no AA. I mean, I was... Apparently AA just got into China like 20
1: years ago. Right. Maybe less.
0: It's just not talked about. If you have a drinking problem, you're kind of an outcast or something, you know, or like you just, they don't talk about it. You know, they don't talk about feelings in general, I'd say, you know, it's not a very expressive culture. It's very much about the group rather than the individual. And they also don't really talk about mental illness at all. So I think that also like, you know, dovetails into that. So they're not into therapy, you know, Right. so things like AA, I think are a little foreign,
1: um, to Asian cultures, and that's been my impression at least. Do you think that like is there? And I'm completely making this up, but I just wanted to ask: like, is there a shame in going? Sure, that yeah. doesn't exist in other cultures as much, at least. There's plenty of shame in going. There definitely. was for me, but is there more?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I, I would believe that there's more shame there, and you're you're meant to not have these problems and whatnot, and you should just use your mind to figure it out. You know, like right. just power through and. And stop drinking, you know, on your own and whatnot. And so, was your thing just alcohol, or did it spread into the others? I it definitely spread spread into the others. I loved. I actually didn't love alcohol in the beginning because, as an Asian person, I turn red when I drink, and so right,
1: which is basically like a literally a physical allergy.
0: It is. Um, it's a lack of some en- enzyme of some sort, and I. Um, I found that really horribly embarrassing, um, yeah. especially trying to like talk to women in the beginning, you know, and all that, and just feeling very self-conscious about how it made me look. So my what? first love was weed. Yeah. And I'd say weed and alcohol were my main go-to. That was the, the constants throughout all of it. I tried other drugs, but I was not really much of a fan of the other drugs. I had a girlfriend in college who was really into opioids.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which was my thing. And she uh, tried to get me into it. You know, I I mean, I tried to get you not, into not it. tried to get me into it, but she would offer it to me whenever she was taking it. And yeah. I would feel often very cold and just a little out of it and sleepy and, and then nauseous if there was too much Tylenol or something. I don't know. We never got to the
1: point where you could do the cold water extractions or whatever and take right. out the Tylenol. It's so funny how every drug will just react chemically and everyone differently. Like, so for example, like I, if I smoked weed, right? Like I couldn't even tie my shoes. Right. Like I was just, it would be so stupid and I couldn't move. But I have friends that like it totally charged them up in the same way that like if I did cocaine, it would charge me up almost. And then with opiates, right? Like I know people that had that reaction where it just made them sleepy. Like I could go to the gym on it. Like I Mm. was so fired up from it. Interesting. It just, that's how I reacted to it. But going back to the alcohol thing because uh, I've heard other Asian guys talk about this where yeah. it gives you that physical – like you're physically turned red and so people don't want that. But like did you get the feelings that people talk about where like you feel whole or you feel like – did you feel good inside drinking? Did it give you what you wanted?
0: Later in, in life, yes, I'd say. I mean I, I, I enjoyed the social aspects of it from an early age. Um I liked the taste of it. Um, I liked the fact that it felt like being older or something, like going out with friends and drinking, you know, in downtown Manhattan or something. I I felt like I was, it was a rite of passage. Um, And again, yeah, feeling older, feeling more adult. But I can't say that I was that enamored with the feeling necessarily. Uh, I, I really think weed for me was that, aha moment you know where the first time I got stoned um you know I I was like I think 14 or something and we were waiting in line for a concert and I just remember feeling like I was elevated above myself and I was looking down on everything happening and it was just, just this magical world of everything felt like a movie um and I fell in love with that feeling definitely before I fell in love with the feeling of being drunk
1: Well, that gets me to the next thing, which is like, you know, we, there's a reason we stayed out for so long, right? Like you've been sober for five years. We're about the same age. Um, And so like when you think about when it was good, you know, like, what do you think about? You think about that memory at the concert, but like what else?
0: The good days, I guess, I I can think of a few different, you know, instances. One of them was in college. I went to school in Western Massachusetts in a rural area and I, uh, I started to longboard there and... I would get really high with my friends on a sunny day and we would go skate around the campus and you know, we'd be drinking too, but it wasn't super heavy on the drinking at that point. Yeah. It was more just like getting high and feeling energized. And and that's something that sort of changed over the course of my using is that in the beginning I could have these very energetic highs where I'd go rock climbing and swimming and, you know, skateboarding and have this real energetic, um, experience. Um, And then later on, it became more about just feeling lethargic and actually paranoid,
1: um, which I really... That's what I got from it. Weed would make me so paranoid. Like, I could smoke with you. Like, let's say it was, you know, about to go to bed and I could smoke with you, but then I'm leaving in five minutes. Sure. Like, I need to go be by myself now. Yeah. Put myself to bed.
0: I felt that so intensely and it took me so long to admit it. Um, I used to think that I just liked to get high by myself. And it was about the experience of it, the, you know, keeping it pure or something. But even with my close friends, it, w- it would create this distance. Oh, my God. Um, totally. I just really didn't like that. I would think there was a subtext, everything they were saying. And then I'd get caught up in trying to weave in and out of the subtext and the
1: what it was the
0: actual text, I
1: guess. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the words powerless and unmanageability are thrown around a lot in recovery rooms. And so I sometimes ask someone that I'm interviewing, I'm like, if there was one story that summed that up for you, what would it be? Powerlessness. Um, Or just, you know, or we could go in that direction. Or just like, when you think about like, what were the consequences of what happened? What did it look like at the end when it wasn't good? Like, what do you think about?
0: I think about the endless monotony of waking up, getting high- Drinking, passing out, and doing that as many times as I could every day. Um, and it was really unrelenting and exhausting. And I really relate to that sentiment when people say sometimes in the rooms, they say, you were sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, I, I was just real worn out. Um, never ending getting high, drinking, and then kind of hating myself, but not really knowing what to do. Were you, like? Would you try to stop? I never made a real effort to stop. I, I made one effort to stop when I moved to China. I decided I was going to quit smoking weed. Is it um, easy to get drugs in China? It was, a, it was an adventure getting drugs. Um, I was living in Shanghai, so it was a cosmopolitan city uh, right. full of foreigners. So
1: it was not very hard once I found it. Um, but You're not nervous? like I know like the penalty for drugs is different than here.
0: I wasn't really that nervous. It was part of the fun. Right, right, I, I right. liked the the search for the drugs, you know, no matter what country it was. Um, I mean, I wouldn't do it in like Iran or something, but
1: right. or Saudi Arabia. But I totally understand and relate to the idea of like, I felt like I was on like this hamster wheel, right? And I see the thing is, I made these proclamations. And I would say like, okay, like a big one for me was like, when I'm this age, I'll quit. So like, Things really got going for me around, like, 29. That's when, like, it really started to upswing. Yeah. So I'd be like, oh, I'll do this for, like, another year, like, 32, 33. And then, like, the years just, like, that was one of the alarming things for me. It was, like, the years just were gliding by. Yeah. And I was, like, doing what you were doing, a lot of a lot of solitary, like, first social, but then at the end, a lot of solitary. I was looking around me, and, like, my friends were getting married. And then that didn't bother me as much. But then, like, my friends are now having kids. And, like, there I am doing the same stuff that I was doing at, like, 25. Sure. And, like, that really started to bother me because I was, like, emotionally, like, not going anywhere. Like, my life was just in, like, a rut, complete standstill. Yeah. My bottom, I don't know. I like to hear yours. But it's nothing dramatic. It's just me, like, watching Netflix day after day, getting high and being like, is this
0: it? I relate to that so much. I didn't have a, a spectacular bottom of any sort. Um, I really, I started to modify my expectations for myself and also my personality to fit the addiction. I don't really know exactly when that happened, but for example, I took a job working the night shift at a newspaper, shooting crime—you know, taking pictures of dead bodies and that kind of stuff—and I. Kind of modified my life to be a reflection of that. So th- how so? So I was this. I imagined myself as this hard bitten, you know, tortured uh, artist. Tortured, not even artist. You know, this sort of um, tabloid newspaper photographer who uh, was seeing these difficult things, and I had to drink it all away. Mm. And it was just an excuse to to drink more and to to really settle into that lifestyle. A lot yeah. of journalists drink a lot and right. there's this sense of, oh, you you cover this terrible story and then you go to the bar and, you know. Uh, uh, commiserate about it? Commiserate, make dark jokes about it, you know. That sounds kind of fun though, too. Sure. It was a, it was a romantic in its own way, but in reality, um, I didn't even really want to go and commiserate with my fellow journalists. I just wanted to go to the liquor store and get some nips and then drink them in my car and smoke cigarettes in the car <laughs> by myself. Right. And, um, you know, the the funny thing about covering crime in the city, you know, you get sent out to all these different far-off places, East New York and different parts of the Bronx and um, Queens and whatnot, and there's always a 24-hour liquor store, no matter what. Usually there's right. one within a block of the murder scene <laughs> or whatnot. So one time I actually even... uh took some photos of the scene and then I walked straight into the liquor store and then the detectives from the scene saw me, you know, as I was coming out and they made some comment to me and I was, you
1: know, embarrassed about the fact that... Well, that was the next me. question I was going to ask you is like, did any... You seem like I've always... We, we see each other in meetings fairly often and like you seem like a very social guy. Um, and so like, did people start like going to you and being like, is everything okay? Like, did anyone... Not that they had an intervention, maybe they did, but did anyone ever say anything? Family member, friend, like we're concerned, what's going on?
0: They did. I, I hit it pretty well for my parents and my brother, um, but uh, I had an intervention with some of my high school friends, where they uh, invited me over to dinner and then they sat me down and said, "We're really here because you know you've expressed a desire to quit drinking or that you had problems with it." To each of the. Parties individually, yeah. How many people show up to something like that? Seven, six yeah. or seven. Yeah, yeah. But I was pretty good at disarming. I, were I, you? I, did you feel like you were just ambushed? I did. I had no idea that it was happening, but I was pretty good of, at being slippery about it. So by the end of the intervention, we'll call it, uh, we were still drinking wine together, and uh, I had kind of. Told them yes, I'm very appreciative that you're concerned, but I'm dealing with it in my own way, and you know, giving them vague answers about how long before
1: you got sober was that?
0: It was not that long after that that I got sober. I'd say maybe a year, six months to a year. Yeah. So it did sink in, and I'm forever grateful. I had a roommate, two roommates, towards the end of my drinking, who were really the kindest most supportive guys that I could ask for. And one of them was really brutally honest with me. He would tell me, you smell terrible. You know, you smell like the homeless guy on the train that everyone moves away from. And it's Mm -hmm. like 10 in the morning. He would say, you don't look so good today. He would say, you know, these things that are kind of difficult to say to a friend and also a roommate where you don't really want to make it awkward. He really was very honest with me. And I've told him many times in sobriety, you know, that... I'm forever indebted to him for that because not only did he say those things with really no um, motivation, he wasn't telling me because he was annoyed. He wasn't telling me because he wanted something out of me. He was really telling me to be a good friend.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: And I got that feeling when he would tell me, you
1: know. When that happened, so sometimes that would happen to me and, like, I would suddenly, like, I thought I was fooling a lot of people, right? right? I really didn't think anyone was wise to me, even though, like... One of my symptoms was, like, I didn't smell, but, like, I would get these, like, really dark circles under my eyes. Like, because mm. I was taking opiates all the time. My skin would look gray. Um, I just looked generally, like, exhausted all the time. <laughs> yeah. And if someone said to me, like, you you don't look good, like, I would be like, what? And that's also because I'm vain. But mm. I would also be like, what? Like, you know? Like, I, I would be very upset.
0: Oh, yeah. I was shocked. I thought I had uh, a lot of people fooled, and it turned out that that was not the
1: case. But, like, your career is going fine right? It's not like you're like, you're not destitute and you're working and everything's fine in that department. I wasn't destitute, but
0: I was definitely just scraping by. You I, were. Okay. I, I remember having to borrow money because, uh, there was some problem with the payment for my job. And as a freelancer, like I just didn't have any savings, you know? So I would, if anything were to go wrong for a couple weeks or a month or something, then I would have no money. Right. And you've always been a freelance photographer. I have always been a freelance photographer. I had one job at a college that was in the marketing
1: department of this architecture firm in Shanghai. Got it. But, so then, take me through, like, how then what led you to walk through the door of a recovery room?
0: So I, I kind of knew that I had some sort of problem with drinking and getting high. Like I said before, I, I decided I was going to stop smoking weed when I moved to China, and that was sort of this half-hearted attempt to clean up my act Mm -hmm. and that quickly got derailed Um, uh, after about three months I I found some weed in like an old pocket of a pair of pants and I immediately smoked it, and then right. like, f- from that moment on, I was like,
1: "Okay, I'm finding weed. This is." There so was much nothing better. more exciting, by the way, than when that happened. So
0: exciting! It felt like <laughs> it felt like Christmas, really. I mean, if I
1: found an old pill in yeah. a jack, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so excited right now!"
0: Oh yeah, so great. Um, or finding it on the street. I don't yeah. know if you've ever had that happen, but it just felt like, yes, there is a god, right, you right, know. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I, and then in China, that you know, because of the intermittent, there were intermittent dry periods of not being able to get. Um, weed, mm-hmm. I would drink a lot more. And that's when my drinking really escalated. I didn't really like the way it made me feel. I would get really sick if I drank too much. I would throw up. I would just feel like my heart was beating out of my chest. Again, I blamed it on circumstance. So I feel lonely here. I feel very odd because I look Chinese, but I don't feel Chinese and I don't speak the language. And I feel like
1: such an alienated human being here. But so... I understand why, what you're saying. But like, if I was someone like, I don't know, my mom or like someone, a a friend who didn't understand alcoholism and they heard you say, like, every time I drank, I got, my heart was coming out of my chest. I was physically uncomfortable. Most people would say, so then they're like, why would you ever do it again? So like, why would you keep doing it? Because there were always those moments too, where it felt great,
0: where I played the chemist, you know, I think trying to find the magical formula yeah, of what felt that. amazing. Mm-hmm. And even if those times were not very common, I, I think they still felt justified in seeking. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of fits within a larger understanding outside of addiction in that many people will try at something and try to succeed at something even if they fail many times. And I think in some ways that's a, that's a good uh, trait to have. It's just that for me, the goal wasn't to make money or to be successful. It was to get to that feeling of feeling amazing from the combination of drugs and alcohol. And it was addictive chasing that. I, totally. I, I guess maybe that's also part of it, right, is that it's not the end result. It is the process. And it took me a long time to understand that getting high, some of the best parts of it were just the
1: parts leading up to it. Totally. And There's nothing more it. exciting than your dealer being on the way.
0: Right. And then you take that first hit or you take that first pill, whatever, and then you feel that, ah, yes. Yeah. And then after that, then it kind of goes downhill. But that little stretch, I think, was motivation enough for
1: me to try to over and over and over again, even if I was getting negative results and negative feedback. I mean, I just wanted, like you talked about escapism. Like I just wanted to, I was someone also chemist and I would bump around a lot. Right. Mm. So like if I was if I drank, I'd want uppers. If I was too up, I'd want downers. And, you know, and at the end, I'll tell you what the end looks like for me. The end is like Adderall in the morning, uh, go to work, opiates and alcohol and then Ambien or Xanax to like to cap it off. Right. Mm. So like I'm all day, I'm just upping up and down, um, just never being satisfied with where I was at. Right. And just like this, this need to get out of it. Sure. So, like, I yeah, I totally get it. Did you know sober people? I knew one sober
0: guy. Okay, so going back to how did I end up going to yeah. the room. So I, I had this guy, a friend of mine, who we did a lot of drinking together. And we found each other kind of late in the sort of young person's life. Like, I think we met in senior year of high school. And uh, he went to a different high school. And we realized that we kind of liked to drink the same way. And we liked to roam around the city drinking and that kind of stuff. And we became fast friends and we ended up, both ended up being in Paris at the same time. We did a lot of drinking there. Right. And he was always my benchmark of, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy, right? Hmm. Uh, I had one of those. He, uh, I I witnessed him sticking his finger down his throat to like puke so he could drink more and stay at this party. And he kind of looked over at me and made a shh, you know, thing. (laughs) I thought that was like, wow, that's gnarly, you know. And so for me, that was... Uh, the benchmark of at least I'm not like that guy and then he got sober a few years before I did and that was my first realization that oh maybe maybe there is something that we can do about this and maybe um, maybe that's better maybe that's a better way I, I saw him and he looked great he had lost yeah. I think 20-30 pounds or something you know he was very slim and attractive and he had this clarity to him and he was always kind of a ladies' man, but mm-hmm. he was like dating these like very attractive uh, model dancer types and whatnot. And so it for the first time, I saw what sobriety could look like because I had curated, like many of us, groups of people who drank like me, did drugs like me. So I had no frame of reference of what a sober person would be like. So what happened? How did you end up walking and getting sober? So my life was getting worse and worse and worse. I was drinking more and more. I was working less and less. As a freelancer, I could kind of dictate how much I worked I would or rather I would start taking more and more days off just to get fucked up yeah and I got caught a couple times one time I was supposed to go take a portrait of this lady and as soon as I walked in the door she was like oh have you been drinking oh and I thought whoa shit you know I thought I had a system down and I think I've I've qualified about this so my system was that I'd wake up super early 6 a.m 7 a.m because I usually couldn't sleep very very long And uh, I would wake up, get high, drink some something, whatever, and then pass out and then wake up again, take a shower, try to go for a walk, have something to eat, and then chew raw garlic to cover up the smell of booze on my breath that was just perpetually there. And so that system I thought was infallible. Mm. And so when that lady immediately, you know, really just immediately said something, I mean, now I look back, I'm like, maybe she was sober, actually. (laughs) And that's how she knew. (laughs) But um, what did you say? I, I kind of laughed it off awkwardly and said, oh, well, yeah, I had a, a beer with lunch. You know, mm-hmm. I think it was 1 p.m. at that point, so it was somewhat plausible. So I went into like a dark place there, and I just drank myself stupid for six days. But it wasn't really any different than any other day. It just maybe was longer than <laughs> – anyways, I went through that for about six days, and then I woke up shaking, and my heart just felt really – week and I was sweating and I would get these feelings pretty frequently when I was driving to work in the morning that my heart just felt like it was going to have a problem Um, I it felt like I knew what a a heart attack would feel like it just felt like a tightening and that really made me think twice so I googled what do you do if you're going through alcohol withdrawal which is sort of what I thought was happening and I was expecting it to say like, "Have my lanta" or you know, "Have a sandwich" or something. And instead, it said, "If it's bad enough, go to the hospital." And that really is not what I wanted to hear. But I was feeling very
1: raw. So you went to the hospital.
0: Well, I was I was willing to go to the hospital. Yeah. And I was willing to take suggestions at that point. And so I looked up a hospital. I looked up an AA meeting, and decided I was going to go to one you of those. You knew what AA one was. One of those two. Um, I did, and it was because of my friend that um, I knew that it existed. And so I ended up going to the AA meeting. What was your first meeting? It was a caucus in Brooklyn Brooklyn Heights, okay. and it was full of these big, like, you know, smiling, wealthy-looking people, uh, a little older and they uh, they invited me, of course, you know, very, very friendly. You raised your hand the first day? I raised my hand and said, I have one day, which was not technically true because right. I had been drinking, the, you know, that morning or whatnot. And I just burst out crying in front of all these people. I just couldn't hold it in. And it just felt like such a relief. It was so embarrassing and yet such a relief. It just, the tears rolling down my face, I was, my face was all contorted and puffy and I was trying to hold it together, and I just couldn't. People came out to me after and told me it was going to be okay. And this one guy walked with me back to um, Crown Heights where I was living, and he told me a little bit about his story. And he just sort of gave me some suggestions and very gently. And he said, uh, you know, if you can, you should try to make it to another meeting today. And Mm -hmm. I looked up uh, a meeting, and I ended up at midnight at the 10 p.m., and uh, this guy came out to me and asked me to read some passage uh, at the start of the meeting. And that guy became my sponsor. And unbeknownst to me, a lot of those other people in that meeting that day became my friends. They were all newly sober, ranging from a week to, I think, three or four years. And they, um, you know, rallied around me. They invited me to the diner. And I kept on saying, no, oh, I'm busy. Oh, right. I don't think so. And, it, you know, got me through that awkward part and really just carried me through that first you know year or two of sobriety you know telling me so that was have milkshakes you know have gummy bears drink some soda it's okay treat yourself okay you know all right you know it's okay to binge on sugar you know so you never drank again after that first meeting no uh not after that wow so that's far. such
1: a good, that that is the classic like when people talk about like why aa's great that's yeah. the story Right. Right? It's just like I came in, I cried and like people helped me and they took me out.
0: Yeah. I got really
1: lucky really with that group of people because yeah. they were like
0: young people and there were like a couple cute girls and so I was like kind of like oh, I'll keep going back just cuz I want to see these cute girls more, you know. And Yeah. And that sort of uh <laughs> that just hooked me, you know, and and mm-hmm. it really um and also it was great to see people at different stages of the the journey you know there were some people that were kind of more like me like dark and sullen and kind of broken and then there were some people who were more happy and easygoing and then there were kind of like the elders of the group where I think had like five years or four years who were just
1: seemed like so wise and like patient and they knew all this stuff. And, and by just, the way, I I like that there's all of those, right? Because on any given day, like there's days I might want dark and sullen. Like sure. I'm feeling that and I want to commiserate with someone that has that. Oh, yeah. So it's a good thing that they're there. I don't think it necessarily like, oh, they're bringing it down. No, I think they're like they're contributing just as much. Totally. I think the real power of A is the fact
0: that everyone's on a different timeline. So you do get different stages. And that's not necessarily always looking forward. It's good to look backwards too Mm -hmm. and to see, oh, yeah, I remember being really on edge that first year and to have compassion for that person in the room, but also for yourself at an earlier stage and to realize the continuity of this whole process. You know, that some days we feel like newcomers and then some days we feel like we have it all figured out. And, just having all those different examples to draw upon
1: is really useful, in my opinion. Did you in that first year, like, did you ever feel like you got close to a drink? Or was there a moment where you really were like, I'm not sure this is for me, maybe this is all just a big overreaction?
0: Yes, I definitely felt close to drinking many times. And a lot of what I was afraid of was actually just my body reaching out and grabbing and
1: drinking it before my mind could say no. Sometimes I still feel like that, by the way. Oh, yeah, I do too. Like sometimes if a glass of wine is within arm's reach, it's not like I feel like I'm going to spasm and drink it. I'm not that irrational, but I think like all it would take is like one reach and that would be it. Totally. And I think I'm like so
0: close I do actually think sometimes that I will spasm and just grab it and drink it. And I I don't know what that is. I mean, I used to have these dreams very frequently. And now that I think about it, I haven't had it in a while, but I used to have them probably once or twice a month where in the dream I would be drinking or smoking weed. And then I would suddenly realize, oh wait, there was something I wasn't supposed to be doing. I can't remember, was it weed, was it drinking, was it both? (laughs) And then I'd feel this immense shame and guilt Mm -hmm. in the dream. And I think that was a reflection, too, of that, that, re, of that, that unthinking, fear.
1: Yeah, unthinking
0: drinking or something.
1: Yeah. So it's been five years now. I asked you to bring two things that you wanted to talk about today. What did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about the transference of addiction
0: onto other things. And I think uh, I would love to hear what you think also,
1: your thoughts <laughs> on that, you know, and how you've seen it manifest in your sure. sobriety. Sure. I mean, oh, my God. Well, first of all, like, people talk about that whack-a-mole analogy all the time, right? That, like, one thing goes down and another thing pops up. And, oh, my God, has that been true for me? First of all, like, let's just make this present day, right? I smoked Parliament Lies for 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. From, like, 25 to 35. But then I got sober and, like, I found it disgusting. You were talking about going through your own issues with smoking now. I quit for years. And then someone put, like, a jewel in my hand, You know, six Mm. months ago and I loved it. Yeah. And I've probably bought and thrown away like 10 jewels, (laughs) you know, and it's just like, it's that, it's that mentality of like, I can't say no, but I see it all the time. Oh my God. With dating, sex, porn. Yeah. Um, I definitely see it in all those places. Food, sugar. Yeah. Big sugar person. Yeah. Um, And I see that sort of allergy. You know, people talk about the allergy, like you, you can't have just one drink and I have that with food a lot. Right. Like I cannot keep a lot of food in my house. Yeah. What about you? Yeah,
0: I guess I see it a lot in um, in shopping, money. Oh, totally. Uh, work. Yeah. You know where I, I just I, I'll see myself getting really addicted to to work and to money and counting money, and you know, like sometimes when I'm bored, I'll just like think about all of the invoices I sent out and how much money I'm ex- I should be expecting. And it's so unsatisfying, which is such an interesting thing, you know, that um, when I do get the money, it doesn't feel like, oh, yes, now I have this money. (laughs) I just think, okay, what is the next chunk of money that I can get, you know? Well,
1: that's another point of like, it's living in that for that next thing. Like, that next thing's going to make me feel is going to be it, right? Totally. I used to totally live that way, by the way. Like, as soon as I get this, everything's going to be great. As soon as I get this girl, everything's going to be great. If I get this job, everything's going to be great. And you can keep doing that over and over again. People with better sobriety than me will say, like, well, you need to fill that hole, they call it the God-sized hole, with a higher power and not the shopping, the food, the sex, the, the vape, whatever. And I've always sort of struggled with that.
0: Yeah, I think that's – it's a bit of a a tall order, I think, when you say just give it over to a higher power, have a higher power. That's a very vague – It's vague or incredibly simple. It is, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around that in some ways. Someone said something really brilliant to me the other day. Uh, She had heard it at a different meeting, but she said instead of turn it over – Go or be dragged. It's the idea of get rid of the self-will, get rid of the struggle, you know, by just sort of allowing yourself to be pushed in a different direction. And I think that to me was in some ways easier to comprehend than turning it over. Like, how do you turn it over? Like, how do you turn over your will or whatnot? But if you notice there are things that you're struggling with, like for me, it's the materialism, then maybe I need to just step away from... The materialism for a little bit, you know. Maybe if I'm getting this super strong urge to look at a bag online for hours, then I need to just not do that for the meantime, and 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 try to fill it with something else. And that God-sized hole, I think, yeah, it's true, right? I mean, there are all these like ways in which we have to fulfill ourselves, but for me, at least in the in the current time period, I'm just thinking about how do I be alone with myself and pass the time in a constructive way that's not. Obsessive. The free time, the pockets of free time, I find I get really impatient and I want something to do. I want something to think about. I want something to be working on or something in my brain. And for me, what's helped is, you know, doing the meditation in the mornings. uh, That gives me more patience overall. Trying to reach out to people and call people, you know, and and talk to them over the phone. I think that's a good good way. That's what it really, that's what it takes for me. Yeah. I
1: have to go out and and talk to someone else. Right. Um, People, and you know, if I can, if I'm being really good, if my program's humming along, then it's, how can I be of some sort of service today? And that's when it's, that's when it's really going
0: well. Totally. And I think all these other negative things are just indications that something else maybe needs attending. You know, like if, if I'm spending too much time looking at the bags, then I know that maybe I'm not. Directing my energy enough in other parts of my life, you know, maybe I'm not reaching out as much as I should. I'm yeah. not helping others as, as much as I should. And I, I do believe that those things are just ways to get out of my own head, you know. And, and I f- I forget them all the time. I think like a lot of us. What was the second thing you wanted to talk about? I mean, recently it's been kind of like one day at a time, you know, trying to, you know, not get too crazy about fixing everything all at once. And that's something I struggled with in early sobriety. I think I had a month and I, I I realized that I had wronged this other photographer and I wanted to make amends to her. Right. Um, I had kind of like cheated her out of a little bit of money, you know, like we were splitting this job. And it was really I had gotten the job and I was outsourcing her portion, you know, a portion of it to her. And I decided I was going to pay her a little less than half, even though she was doing half the work. Right. And actually, she did a better job than I did, too. <laughs> um, and I, I felt bad about it. And she had called me out on it. And I wanted to make amends, and so I tried to make amends to her over Venmo, you know? Like, I sent her this, like, amount of money, and then, like, with this long-ass fucking statement saying how sorry i was i hope your venmo wasn't public <laughs> it was not and i was like making changes in my life and it's like sanctimonious bullshit and that's so classic 30 days though like, oh yeah i definitely did that like
1: i think i told people i was sober after like three days like i'm, I'm sober now right right <laughs> i'm a new person yeah, yeah, yeah
0: she was so funny about it too she was great she just wrote back she was like i don't want your money it's fine like yeah. <laughs> and like didn't even didn't give me the satisfaction i mean she was nice about it but she didn't give me the satisfaction like I, i'm glad that she did, wasn't like um oh thank you so much. This really
1: makes a big difference, you know. Like
0: the one day at a time out.
1: thing, it's so cliche, right? But like it really is true. Yeah. And look because you that transcends everything. Sure. Right? It transcends like all the things that we were just talking about, like all the other stuff that pops up in life. Um it's not like life doesn't disappoint me sometimes. I'm sure you feel the same mm. way. It can that can manifest relationships or work or yeah. whatever. Um But it really is just one day at a time. Like, I'm sure you feel the same way that you don't have this overwhelming desire to drink and drug anymore. Right. Like, besides the fear of an arm spasm. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So, like, it's just getting through the other stuff and that mentality, you know. What about – I always ask people this. Like, what's the most powerful thing you think you've ever heard in a meeting?
0: Oh, man. That's a hard one. It is. It's also hard because I – And I don't know why this is, but I feel like a lot of this program is like in one ear, out the other. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it means that I'm not retaining everything. It's just that there's a kind of fluidity to it or something. And I think it's made that way
1: because we have to deal with this on a daily basis. Um, But there are moments, I feel like, in my sobriety where I heard something because usually I needed to hear it in that moment. And it could have been... I'll give, you, I'll give you an example from my own life, right? And AA has plenty of corny expressions. And I remember I had um, 59 days or something like that, very early sobriety. And I heard someone speak and they were talking about the idea. He said, once you leave the lion's den, you don't go back for your hat. And so he said, mm. and I've never drank again. And that's what I really felt like I was in. Like I, like I felt that. like I was in the lion's den big time. Yeah. And there was always that little thing in the back of my head that's like, maybe I can go back to the way it was and like just use on the weekends or just use on vacation. Yeah. That was a big fantasy for me. Right. I was like, I'll bring some pills on a plane. Yeah, I'll go on vacation. I won't have access to more. By the time I come back, I'll just go back to being sober.
0: I love that idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or like an island that we could yes! all go to and just yeah. get fucked up <laughs> in. and like
0: have sober people, sober coaches. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. I'll just let myself have this little vacation, little drug vacation. And oh, then yeah. I'll just go back to the way things are. And that is what he talks about, like that going back for your hat. So you said you you made your amends. Yes. How did they react?
0: It was a really amazing process to making amends because I I was able to sit them down and, you know, explain to them like, you know, that I had this this drinking problem and it led me to do all these these things that affected them and they didn't really feel like it was a lot bigger in my head I think than it was in theirs. And mm-hmm. I think that's the common theme in a lot of the yes. the uh, amends is that I built it up as like I just did the worst fucking thing in the world and the other person's like oh, I barely remember <laughs> that, you know. Um, but it was also what that conversation led to was an ability for my parents
1: to ask questions. Which is the be- that exactly. Yeah. And to be like, oh, so like this podcast, which my parents listen to has opened up huge doors in that yeah. regard.
0: Huge. And that's so cool. I mean, because I think that's that's part of this process, right, is like connecting with others and being able to speak freely about things that maybe we want to talk about, but we don't we can't. And um, that's the process that, that's been for me of getting sober is being able to make these things that used to be kind of taboo or like, oh, we don't talk about that. You know, suddenly they're out in the open and we can share them and then everyone feels much better about them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that process of making amends was, was a way to do that with my parents. And I think they felt relieved in some ways because, you know, they blamed themselves too. Like they had this feeling like, oh, like could we have done something different? You know, like, so
1: literally two weeks ago, my mother calls me. She's listened to another episode of the podcast. And mm. she says, can I ask you something? She said, is there something that I did that made you this way? Yeah. You know? And, like, how do you even begin to answer that? Because, first of all, it's, it's no. Right. It's like, and I tried to explain, like, this is just the way I was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was sensitive. I And I grabbed onto something that soothed me. Yeah. Right. But the beauty of the conversation was because it was much longer than that. It was like thirty minutes, and we were really able to get into what was happening in our family. What was what mm. was the dynamic like? Who do I take after? You know, I take after my dad, who takes after his dad, right. and like all that gets passed down. And so that was a beautiful conversation that I would never have ever if like I wasn't in this program. When yeah. People talk about gifts of sobriety. Like those are the, those conversations in a, in a great way are.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That deeper understanding of each other and being able to really, I don't know, just connect with another person, especially the family Mm -hmm. and and friends, you know, in a way that I was so unable to do. And, you know, I could make conversation, but, you know. Same. Yeah. Same.
1: I was really, I I struggled to connect. Yeah. And that goes beyond family, you know, romantically also. It's something I still struggle with. Sure. I'm getting a lot better at it, though. Last one, I always ask people if for newcomers or when you are sponsoring someone or just in general, like if you had piece of advice, one or two, for someone that's trying to get sober and thinking about it, like what do you tell people? Life just completely changes, you know,
0: as you get sober. And the things that I thought I wanted in the beginning are completely different now. And people told me that in the beginning, you know, this idea of you're just peeling back layers of the onion, you know, and it just keeps on giving and giving and giving. And I really didn't fully believe that, you know, because I think when you first get sober, you're you're thinking about getting sober. It's just you think you have one problem, right? And that one problem, if you just get rid of that one problem, then everything is great. Totally. Um, and now what I see is that there were many problems, there are many problems, but now I I have the ability to work on those problems and moreover a desire to work on those problems, you know, and I think you know, you get to them when you get to them, right? I mean, like when you first get sober, you should just be worried about that one problem because it is the the beginning of everything, right? If if you can stop drinking or doing drugs, then you can get enough time and energy to start working on the other, um, you know, problems you may have, mm-hmm. but. You know, like happiness for me has come from like the most unexpected places, like serenity, peace, like all these things. I didn't even know what those words meant when I was drinking or doing drugs. I mean, I had a vague conceptual idea of what they meant. But that feeling of all of a sudden of like where I'll just not need anything in that moment, maybe it only lasts for 30 seconds or a minute or five minutes. But that sense of peace, you know, is really, you know, there's no, no value you can assign to that. Yeah, and it really it comes from a lot of different places. The ability to appreciate many other things um, in life that I just had completely written off. You know, I, I like to tell this joke sometimes, where when I was in the throes of drinking, getting high, my friend, you know, would desperately be trying to get me to do something besides get high and drink, and he was like, "Oh, why don't we go to the park and walk around?" And I thought that was like the dumbest fucking idea I ever heard. I'd ever heard. I was like, go to the park. Like, fuck you. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm going to get high and like, you know, jerk off and stare at the wall. Like, you know, like that's, that's my fucking rock and roll lifestyle, you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, now I totally get it. Right. I I like, I remember being in early sobriety, like maybe six months in and I went to the park and I was like, holy shit, it's beautiful. (laughs) It's amazing. And so if my perspective can change in that way, you know, in such a short amount of time, like I feel like that gives me hope for the future, right? Is that I can, you know, if that door was open, like there are so many other doors that can open yeah. and we can change and we can, you know, learn
1: to, to see this this world in a different way. So my thanks again to Stephen Y for coming on the podcast today. Just a couple quick reminders. If you do like the content, it's really helpful to leave a review and a rating. It makes the podcast more discoverable. If you want to write me or email me, it's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at kcbpodcast. Happy New Year. My name is Mike S., and this has been another episode of Keep Coming Back, real stories of sobriety and recovery, and I will see you next week.